0: What kind of a show
1: are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
0: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting.
1: I'm Adam Kempenar. And I'm Josh Larson. You know what a compromise is?
0: Bend in the law?
1: No. It's an agreement reached by mutual consent. Now. Here's the way it works. You can see the necessity of going to school. We'll keep right on reading the same every night, just as we always have.
0: We both have daughters, Josh. Safe to say that Atticus Finch was
1: the movie dad we set out to be? I don't think I'm allowed to say that after my Sacred Cow review of To Kill a Mockingbird. So I'm just going to go with, how about I go with Tracy Lutz in Lady Bird? A much easier bar to clear there for sure. This week on the show, we've got our
0: top five father-daughter duos, plus a review of the new heart-wrenching father-daughter film, After Son, which opens in limited release this weekend. That
1: and more. Let's go buy a big bag of Doritos and eat them in the car. My kind of dad. Ahead on Film Spotting.
0: Welcome to Film Spotting. I'm looking at the last couple of films I've logged over on Letterboxd, Josh, and it's the new Weird Al movie and a documentary about the influential Chicago chef Charlie Trotter. You've got Ozu's Late Spring and PTA's The Master. <laughs> Are you trying to make me look bad?
1: Hey, anything can be great, Adam. Anything can be great. Hopefully hopefully, Weird Al was for you.
0: Well, later in the show, I'll have some thoughts on Weird, the Al Yankovic story. The Trotter doc comes out on the 18th, so I'll get to that Next week, we'll also have a review on this show of After Sun, the debut feature from Scottish director Charlotte Wells. It's the film that inspired this week's top five father-daughter duo. So we're not going with father-daughter movies, though they all presumably are. But we're focusing on our favorite father-daughter relationships on screen How else would you like to set up your list, Josh?
1: Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. My number five, for example, probably would not be included if we were doing the entire film. So I did try to focus on those relationships. And I also, that still left a wealth of options, so many movies to choose from. So I tried to narrow it down by taking a little bit of a personal angle for it. As you mentioned, both dads of daughters. So I thought, what's unique about this father-daughter relationship in this film that might reflect something of my own experience. Just a way to winnow away from all of these great choices we had. I love that
0: introspection. But as I looked over my potential candidates, I didn't see myself in any of these great dads, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't know
1: know that I see myself in all of them. I don't know that they're all great dads. That'll be interesting, too, to see if we have a list of model fathers or maybe maybe a few misfits. That's a
0: really good point. I think I've got at least two who start out that way or who should qualify as great fathers. After that, a little bit more complicated as these family dynamics are. You referenced it earlier. I wasn't going to bring it up. You weren't a big fan of To Kill a Mockingbird, one of our earliest sacred cow reviews. Of course, I am going to call this the Atticus and Scout Finch Memorial List. And I think it's appropriate because nobody can really live up to St. Atticus. We got to go ahead and just set him aside as the dad we all really want to be.
1: The problem is you've got the other side of that equation, Mary Badham's scout. I mean, come on, Adam, don't, don't make me be mean to the child actors. You can, you can refrain, Josh. I've
0: never once watched To Kill a Mockingbird and thought that performance was a detriment. Eek. That's all I can say. Rough, rough watch. Okay, let's dive into our list then.
1: What's your number 5 father-daughter duo? Woody and Troy from Crooklyn. Now, there's been a lot of talk about autobiographical movies lately. We have a bunch of them that have either just come out or are coming out in the next couple of weeks. And Crooklyn is probably the closest Spike Lee has come to making one. His 1994 family drama was written by him, his sister Joy, and his brother Cinque. Set in 1973 Brooklyn, in the brownstone and on the block of a busy young family, headed up by a schoolteacher mother, Alfre Woodard's Carolyn, and a musician father, Delroy Lindo's Woody. The central figure is Zelda Harris's Troy, the nine-year-old girl of the family. So as I said at the top, it's it's really the film more about Troy's experience coming of age than specifically her relationship with her father. But their dynamic is given plenty of attention, especially near the end of the film when, for reasons I'm not going to spoil in detail, Woody finds himself parenting on his own and trying to help Troy process their new reality. Everybody was wondering when he was going to break. Even Clinton cried. Daddy, please don't make me move away. I know alt Maxine wants me to go in love with her. Nobody's going anywhere. I love the gentleness that Lindo gives to Troy here. To be clear, talking about saintly fathers, he isn't exactly that throughout the course of this film. We see a guy with strengths and flaws, but here he meets the moment with a softness that's maybe normally thought of as maternal. And personally, what I liked about Crooklyn and this relationship is it does remind me of the way... Having daughters has encouraged me to lean into the softer side. Now, I like to think I'd be the same way with sons. Maybe I would. I don't know. I don't have any, so I can't say. And to be clear, I'm sure I could be like this more often than I already am. But this scene in Kirkland and the tone that Lindo brings to it, it's just a nice model for what that can look like for fathers. Now, Kirkland isn't a Spike Lee film that comes up a lot when t- people talk about his greatest I do think it's one of his better efforts, though, and I would encourage people to catch up with it if they haven't seen it. It reminds me a lot, Adam, of Cooley High, the Chicago set film that was part of our Black Exploitation Marathon back in 2012. Both movies see black urban life for its harsh realities, but also especially through the eyes of the children here and the teenagers in in uh, Cooley High as a playground too, something, a, a place to have fun and to enjoy life as well. So starting my list off here with Troy and Woody from Crooklyn. I love the pick.
0: It's one that wasn't vivid in my mind because I don't think I've seen Crooklyn since I was a film student. And that was over 20 years ago. But I agree. A very good Spike Lee film. Spike, of course, I've probably got seven, eight or nine films ahead of it just because that's how much I love his work. But Crooklyn, great pick. My number five is Mac and Juno mcguff from Juno. And to go back to what we were saying off the top, I did weigh the extent to which the movie is about the relationship, meaning you could call these, even though I'm focusing on the pairs, you could think of these films for the most part as fundamentally father-daughter films. That relationship is what's core to the movie. And that's certainly true with four of my five choices. So what do I mean when I say a great father-daughter duo that maybe isn't Core of the movie. You mentioned Lady Bird earlier. As much as I love that performance, it's about many things. It's probably even more about the mother-daughter relationship than the father-daughter one. Perhaps arguable, but as much as I love it, I kind of ruled Lady Bird out. I love Royal and Margot Tenenbaum from Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums, but again, didn't feel as central to the movie. Joe and Michelle from All That Jazz. There's lots of great screen fathers and daughters, but maybe they didn't quite have enough substance or the movie didn't explore those relationships in enough detail for me to consider them. The exception then on my list is Mac and Juno. I think it's one of those films where maybe you could say the father-daughter dynamic isn't so crucial to the movie, but actually try to imagine Juno without J.K. Simmons' performance as Mac McGuff.
1: Yeah, it's one of the first things that comes to mind when you think of Juno, for sure.
0: And, And the role that character plays in his daughter's life as she goes through her pregnancy and adoption. I think subversive probably carries too strong a connotation, but certainly one of the reasons the movie is so good is the way Diablo Cody, the screenwriter constantly subverts our expectations of what a high school teen pregnancy comedy should be. And the character of Mac is maybe most crucial to that. Think about every mom, dad, I'm pregnant conversation you've ever seen play out in TV or in a movie, what does the father do? He either flies off the handle or he just shuts down completely and starts drinking, or he flies off the handle, then shuts down and starts drinking in Juno. Like Alison Janney's mom, he stays completely calm. He doesn't even move from his chair. He's very still. He lets Juno talk. He doesn't get angry. There's no rage, which isn't to say He's happy about it, or he's unaffected by the news, or that he doesn't even express some shock and disappointment in his daughter. He does.
1: And I, it's just that I'm not ready to be a mom. <laughs> Damn Skippy, you're not. You don't even remember to give Liberty Beller breathing meds. That was once, and she did not die, if you recall. Honey, had you considered, you know, the alternative? No. Well, you're a little Viking. <laughs> First things first. All right, we have to get you healthy. You need prenatal vitamins. Incidentally, they do incredible things for your nails, so that's a plus. Oh, and we need to schedule a doctor's appointment, figure out where you're going to deliver. Do you know I'm coming with you to meet this adoption couple? You're just a kid, and I want you to get ripped off by a couple of baby-starved wingnuts. Thanks, Dad.
0: There might be an element of wish fulfillment to this dad. Like, Cody is giving us the fantasy version of how we all wish a dad would react in this situation, especially if you're the daughter who has to utter this information, except Simmons performance completely grounds it and makes it complex and real. And I think here, Reitman, Jason Reitman, the director and Cody were playing with our expectations a little bit too, just in the casting. This is pre whiplash, but post J Jonah Jameson. And at this point in 07. I certainly knew Simmons best from his Schillinger character on Oz, who's one of the most vile, scary men who's ever been in a TV series. There is something naturally gruff and intimidating about J.K. Simmons that is replaced here, that's softened and replaced by compassion. And his final line in that scene and Juno's response is a stomach punch in the best way.
1: Boy, I thought you were the kind of girl who knew when to say when.
0: I don't really know what kind of girl I am. Such good writing there and great acting from Simmons and Elliot Page. And think about later in the film, too, Josh, when things with Bateman and Garner's character, the potential adoptive parents, that's taken a turn. And Juno is looking to be reassured about life and love and the two people can be happy together. She sits at the table and has a conversation with her dad. Again, I think subverting our expectations and she comes away from that conversation, that interaction with her father, clearer eyed and happier. Love this relationship. It's my number five.
1: There's also a back and forth in that first scene you referenced mm-hmm. that is biting. It gives you a sense of their relationship, but it's also a little acerbic on Max' part. That balances it's exactly what you're saying. It, it keeps him from being this unrealistic saint. He gets a few digs in at her, right? It's yes. like he's hurt by this. He's disappointed, as you said. And he throws that back at her, even as he is keeping his calm and letting the bottom line be I'm here for you. That's um, right. You know, that, that's what we come away from the scene with is knowing that despite this back and forth they're having, he's absolutely there for her.
0: He's the dad on my list. I most aspire to be like being able to keep my calm (laughs) in a situation like that, only offer my help, not let any kind of disappointment. It could be any type of situation where I know it's going to be tough sledding and difficult decisions are going to have to be made. It's going to put pressure on my daughter or any of my children. I would like to believe that I would be able to sort of compartmentalize all that and just be the helpful father. Alas, I know myself too well.
1: It's a goal. We can all have goals, Adam. All right. My number four, Sukwoo and Suan from Train to Busan. So this film is fresh in my mind and this relationship as well, because I watched it earlier this year for the first time, believe it or not, researching my book on horror that's in the works. Quick plug. You want to find out updates on the book, fuller.edu slash fear not. I knew that this 2016 Korean zombie flick was a big blind spot going in, but man, was it even better than I expected? It begins with a workaholic fund manager father, Suk Woo, played by Gong Yu, who boards a train with his young daughter, Suan, played by Kim Suan, to bring her to meet her mother. The parents are separated. The zombie outbreak that eventually takes place on the train is terrifying. Director Young Sang Ho here makes great use of the constrained space, but it also serves when the zombies push things to be a moral test for suk whose selfish instincts we've already seen, those absolutely kick in once things become life or death. It's his relationship, though, with Suan that leads to essentially his moral awakening, the way she anchors him in a kindness and an innocence that he otherwise wouldn't be capable of or capable of recognizing. This is a guy who's all in it for himself, doing the bare minimum, You feel by his daughter and when the zombies attack, you wonder if he's going to lean into those bad instincts, but it is the daughter being there that pulls him in a different direction. Now, I don't know that this is necessarily distinct to fathers and daughters, but the movie does reflect the way your kids can bring out the best in you especially when you stop and pause and see yourself through their eyes and consider what you're modeling and there's a few instances here where sukwoo does exactly that at least that's been that's been my experience train to busan has a climax involving this father and daughter that is excruciating but it also includes this incredible grace note. It's a flashback detail I'm not going to give away, but it definitely tempers the terror and lends um, a huge amount of emotion to what is otherwise a, a terrifying sequence. Train to Busan delivers the zombie thrills, delivers the tough moral questions that so many zombie movies do. And yeah, has this very moving emotional center thanks to the father and daughter characters. Yeah,
0: you better not say anything more because Train to Busan remains, sadly, a blind spot for me. It's been a blind spot, well, since it came out, but in 2017, I interviewed the filmmaker Anna-Lily Amirpour here on the show. She made a movie called The Bad Batch. That was her most recent film. And during the film Spotting Five, I asked her to name a random movie she loves, Train to Busan, she just was gushing about. And if I'm being totally honest, I think at the time she said it, I'm not sure I was aware of it, but has been in my mind, certainly been on my watch list ever since then. And yet I still haven't caught up with it.
1: Yeah, you got it. It's a rough one. It's it's a full on zombie movie, despite all the emotions I'm talking about. So prepare yourself. Okay. My
0: number four, whenever people think of this movie, you think, of course, about. John Cusack holding the boombox, the love story, the unlikely love story between Lloyd Dobler and Ione Skye's Diane Court. But Say Anything is equally the story of the relationship between Diane and her father, played so wonderfully by John Mahoney. Let's not forget the title of the film is a reference to a line that he says to her at one point in the film and that she uses against him. Later, it's the night she comes home, or the morning, I should say. She hasn't phoned. She hasn't given him any sense of where she's at. It's the first night she's really been intimate, let's say, with Lloyd. And she comes home apologetic. He's mad. He says, I'm not asking what you did. I just want to know that you're all right. And says, Do you want to make things easier on me? Tell me where you were. You can say anything to me. I hope you still know that. That's fundamentally what this movie's about. It's about that honesty. And that vulnerability with someone that allows you to always be truthful. And up until this point, she certainly believes still at this point that she has that type of relationship with her father. And she does, of course, tell him what happened that night, even if it was maybe too much information or not what most high school or college age daughters would want to say to their father, she does, because she does know that they have that type of relationship and her line is, it always feels better, right? It always feels better when I, when I tell you the truth. Later in the film, when it's been revealed that he has been a thief, that he has lied to her, he's stolen from some of the people that he takes care of at the nursing home that he runs, she says... I don't want to leave something out because I know I can say anything to you. You're a liar and a thief. So here it's being wielded as a weapon, her honesty, and she knows that she has to get that off her chest. And even though that too is even harder for him to hear, ultimately it's what she has to do. That note that the movie ends on, it's a little bittersweet, of course, but she still ultimately does say that she loves him. And one of the joys of the film overall is watching jim and diane interact with each other in such a supportive way and really up until things get complicated with lloyd and with the irs support each other and treat each other as equals i think that's really the the interesting lesson of say anything right other than that moment where he's kind of the tough father saying where were you he has always treated her as if they are equal And you marvel at the playful way that they banter together and how comfortable they are with each other. Remember that famous bot solder process monologue starts at dinner with Diane and Jim telling the story of her infamous first flight as an eight-year-old and screaming so loudly on the plane that they had to turn it around and let them off. Lloyd's reaction there is so pure and so honest, even if here again, it's not really the right thing to say. It's not the appropriate place or time for him to say that. To be so vulnerable in that moment and everyone just stares at him awkwardly, he still has to say how he feels.
1: You two are amazing. You know? The way you you talk. I'm just like that with... I'm not even like that with anybody.
0: There's another thing we've talked about over the years of doing this show, Josh. As kids and some movies do a great job of exploring this. As kids, we believe, because I think we have to up to a certain age, we believe our parents are infallible until we discover that they're human and they're flawed and they make mistakes. And Jim just has done a better job of hiding his flaws. And it takes Diane maybe a little longer than most of us to realize it.
1: It's a great reminder about the title coming from their relationship i'm bad sometimes with titles where i just especially movies i feel like i know so well i can gloss right past oh that's just what that's called but yeah it does speak to the importance of that relationship uh, in this film which is a great one my number three winfried and Inez from tony erdman I was looking up my review that I wrote for uh, when this first came out, Adam, and here's what I had. In the annals of father-daughter cinema, it's probably safe to say that there has never been another pair like Winfried and his adult daughter, Inez, in Tony Airdman. So pretty much had to find a spot on my list for this film and this relationship. She's a no-nonsense oil company consultant. He's a part-time music teacher with a penchant for practical jokes, many of which involve ridiculous fake personas. Inez does share her father's dry sense of humor, but she's also really skeptical of him. I describe her in that review as an apple who's fallen close to the tree and then has tried to roll away as far as possible. Their relationship comes to a head one weekend when Winfried shows up for a surprise stay with Inez and insists on going about as the title character, this buck-toothed, wildly-wigged supposed personal consultant. Instead of freaking out, though, she calls his bluff, begins playing along, and that includes, Adam, a crazy scene that you chose as your favorite music moment when we had our 2016 rap party. They're at a party, and Winfried, in his Tony Erdman persona, plays the electric piano while Inez sings. Maybe we can sing a song for you uh, and for your family, just to say thank you.
0: Why not? Okay, it will be nice.
1: Okay, I <laughs> will arrange. Here, yeah. so let us do to and I
0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. program morning, ladies
1: and I will morning, sing a
0: and with I believe the children are a future.
1: I love how that scene starts as a point of antagonism between them, another joke slash prank that exasperates her. But then as they lean into it, again, as she sort of calls his bluff or he calls her his bluff, vice versa, um, something actually kind of moving and even powerful develops between them, despite all of the awkwardness that we are absolutely feeling at the same time. Then the scene, though, ends back in slight acrimony. This is a movie that's way too complicated to offer a moment like this as purely feel-good reconciliation. These are two incredible performances as Inez. Sandra Huller is a blunt instrument, but there are moments we see her watching her father and we sense there might be some limits to Inez's emotional armor. She's built up against him. And then as Winfried, Peter Simonichek, he lets a note of sadness tinge even the broadest scenes, no matter how ridiculous the scenario, you can sense this sadness to Winfried. The writer-director is Marin Ade, and she manages a tone, it's really unlike any other I can think of. It's deadpan, it's discomforting, it's hilarious, but you almost have to uncrinkle your confused brow before you can laugh, before you can get to that point. One of the things I, I like about Tony Urban for this list, as a father of daughters, I like the way it recognizes that there are qualities to those relationships that can cross the gender divide. Sometimes I think it's easier to see reflections of the mom in a daughter or of the dad in a son. And this is a movie that's about coming to terms with the similarities between this father and this daughter for better and for worse. So Tony Erdman is my number three father daughter movie. Yeah,
0: that's all well said. And certainly one of the first films that came to mind for me and is one of my top honorable mentions. My number three father daughter screen duo is could be thrown out on a technicality, but only by the biggest movie Grinch of all time, Moses Prey and Addie Loggins in Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon. We're going from say anything and a caring, supportive father-daughter relationship that becomes more fractured to one that begins with total hostility and resentment and eventually becomes something more caring and supportive. And a real-life father and daughter, Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill, my first but not my last here on this list, who are probably in the movie Father and Daughter. It might depend on which of the characters you ask. But this is Bogdanovich's 1973 black and white masterpiece. A movie that Ryan Johnson told me once here on the show. I was interviewing for The Brothers Bloom, a con man movie like this film. He said, I love plenty of movies, but this is the only one that I can honestly say I wish I had made. It's a few things at once, a road movie, a father daughter story, and a con man movie. He has shown up just as Addie's mother has passed away. He sees that he can get some money out of this, but there's a little quid pro quo. He's going to deliver her to new relatives. Hope he can retain that $200 of hers. And if you look at YouTube, movie clip says eight scenes from Paper Moon available, Josh, and it's impossible to choose one that best represents this film in the incredible dynamic between Ryan and Tatum O'Neill, because all eight of them feature the two of them, which makes sense. They have to be in almost every scene of this movie together and because they are just so good, whether they're working together to pose as Bible salesman, and she's showing her con woman chops, or they're running from the cops, or they're saying goodbye to each other, or they're arguing about that $200 that she insists he gives back to her. There is that, as I said, hostility between them that makes for some really fun exchanges, and she wields some power knowing that he needs her, and while she kind of needs him too she can always just go to the cops if she wants to. And she can play that card against him. And the fun is in how she reverses that parent-child dynamic on him. You're too young to smoke. You're going to set this whole place on fire.
1: I now owe you $103.72. 74.
0: I know our listeners can't see this, Josh, though, you can go to filmspotting.net and click on lists and find this top five and watch it. But you haven't lived until you've watched a young Tatum O'Neill stare scornfully with no F's to give while taking a puff off a cigarette like a pro, like she's been doing it for decades. She may be too young to smoke, but she's not putting that cigarette down. And he gets to turn out the light and go back to sleeping on the hard floor While she sleeps in the motel bed and the lesson here, I think for fathers and for all parents is the need for consistency as hard as it is like you can't claim you're not the parent and you don't have any of those responsibilities. And then all of a sudden when it suits you decide you are going to act like the parent and expect the kid to obey.
1: Yeah, that's that's probably. Not going to work too well. So that technicality you mentioned, I'm not going to begrudge you, your pick, Adam, for that. But it was probably the reason I didn't make this my homework. I saw some listeners debating on social whether it should count for this list. I'm glad you put it on yours. But no Paper Moon for me. A movie I did watch for the first time will be on my list when we come back, though. Plus, our review of the father-daughter memory piece After Sun, and a new film spotting poll about the best autobiographical filmmaker of the last decade. Stay with us.
0: Say it's only a paper moon Sailing over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Yes, it's only a canvas sky Hanging over a cotton tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed
1: Every once in a great while, I can spot a talent that I know is the future of music. But first, got to find you a stage name. Al Yankovic. It's long. It's hard to pronounce. I'm just going to throw this out there. Weird Al Yankovic. I love it. Rain Wilson with Daniel Radcliffe there in the trailer for Weird, the Al Yankovic story, directed by Eric Appel and co-written by Appel and Yankovic himself. Weird is a music biopic in the tradition of Walk Hard and pop star Never Stop Never Stopping. You'll have to tell me if that's really the case, Adam. It's also in the tradition of Yankovic's own legacy as the best, best known, maybe the only pop song parodist. The movie tracks Al's rise from a kid rebel who takes up the accordion in defiance of his parents' wishes, becomes a massive success writing parodies of popular songs, turns to drink and drugs under the influence of none other than Madonna, played by Evan Rachel Wood, and then finds redemption after surviving a shootout with 80s drug kingpin Pablo Escobar. I don't know if any of that actually happened, Adam, or that's just fun, that weird has. You have seen this, so first, I want to know how deep your Weird Al fandom goes. Do you prefer which is better, in 3D or dare to be stupid? <laughs> let me know, Adam, and then let me know what you thought of the movie. Did you come up with those on your own or did our producer Sam have to Sam help gave you me out a little and help. seed those? I'm, yeah, I'm afraid, I, afraid Weird Al I, I let go by
0: in my youth. Oh, man. I was going to say, I just don't see an overly serious 10, 11-year-old Josh Larson being into Weird Al Yankovic. He was, he's kind
1: of in my mind, like the living embodiment of a pun. So yeah. Exactly. Gave him a pass. Wow. Well, you missed it. And I hope you don't miss the fun of
0: Weird, the Al Yankovic story. I mean, I'm not so big a Weird Al fan that I didn't have to look up these albums and remind myself what the track listings were. But in 3D, what a trip down memory lane. In 3D was released in 84. I didn't own any of these albums, but he was for a while ubiquitous. And these three albums released right in a row, his self-titled debut in 83, then 3D in 84 and Dare to be Stupid in 85. This was peak Weird Al. And at nine years old, I wasn't as sophisticated as you, Josh, apparently. I was in my prime
1: for pop song parodies. I don't know if it's a matter of seriousness or sophistication. I think it's just different senses of humor. Let's put it that way. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay. Well, I'm trying to shame you here
0: a little bit for not being able to have fun with Weird Al. You go back to that first album I mentioned. I remember one of the really popular songs of the early 80s. Mickey, oh, Mickey, you're so fine. He had his Ricky version that was a parody of not only that song, Mickey, but I Love Lucy. I didn't know what I Love Lucy was, still thought it was hilarious. I certainly got the joke of I Love Rocky Road, the Joan Jett spoof, My Bologna instead of My Sharona. Then 3D had Eat It on it, had I Lost on Jeopardy, which I loved. Dare to be Stupid had Like a Surgeon, had his riff on Lola which was called Yoda and dare to be stupid itself, which wasn't a parody in terms of the actual lyrics or music, but was a straight ripoff of Devo, who of course was really popular at the time. So (laughs) I got to say the regret has yet to sink in Adam. (laughs) I'm waiting. I thought it was great fun as a kid. And this movie is fun now. And that bit we heard where you have Dr. Demento saying the name's too long. We got to change it. And then all he does is add a word to it. It's perfect. It reflects the earnest absurdity of this movie. Everybody from Radcliffe to Rain Wilson as Dr. Demento, all the cameo appearances and especially Evan Rachel Wood as Evil Madonna, you would be shocked at how much of a character Madonna is in this movie. I mean, she's really the the antagonist in this film and it's of course all fabricated. They're all absolutely committed to the bit. It's got all the moments you expect a Weird Al movie to have fun with. You mention Walk Hard. Yeah, it's in that vein, though it makes Walk Hard look conventional by comparison. But we do get the big breakthrough musically, the alcohol and drugs, the band breakup, the troubled childhood with a father who forbids him to play the accordion. Of course, the eventual redemption. But a less unhinged parody of Oscar-bait music biopics, no matter how dead on, would have been an insufficient celebration of Weird Al and his work. Nothing and everything is true about it. <laughs> and that that's an interesting combination that it pulls off. I think that I probably haven't convinced you that it's worth seeing, and it's probably a hard sell as well when we're in November and we've got so many movies to catch up with, including ones that surely are going to be on top 10 lists. And I don't know that weird is going to make anybody's, but if you need 95 minutes of true entertainment and you want to laugh a little bit, Josh, I think even you would be hard pressed to not chuckle a bit <laughs>
1: at weird. I could, I could use a good chuckle. No, it, it does sound good. I think, what you're describing actually does sound more of a fit with uh, what I yes. find pretty funny, more than the music, perhaps. So I might just have to check out Weird. It's currently playing exclusively on the Roku channel. If you see it and agree or disagree with Adam's review, let us know at feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week, we are going to have reviews of Black Panther Wakanda Forever. That opens this weekend. Warning, Adam, two hours and 40 minutes. Saw oh, it I yesterday. Saw it. I looked it up just before I went, almost turned around, gathered up the stamina, headed out, sat through all of Wakanda forever. We'll discuss next week alongside Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Now, that's being released by Netflix, so the release schedule is a little confusing. It's going to play in theaters, but only for a week, starting November 23. Then it will be on Netflix on December 23rd. But, of course, we want to see the new Ryan Johnson film as early as possible and talk about it. So we'll have a review next week. We
0: will indeed looking ahead to January. We remind you that tickets are on sale. If you are anywhere on the East coast or looking to make a trip out to New York and Hey, put film spotting aside, just think about the theater that you can go and see. We're going to see The Piano Lesson with Samuel L. Jackson and John David Washington on Broadway. Lots of great plays to see. If you need any other excuses to come to New York Saturday, January 14th, we will be at the Bell House in Brooklyn, 8 p.m., doing our first live rap party in a few years, our favorite movie moments of the year, the best opening scenes, funniest scenes, most moving moments, our favorite music moments, and what we determined to be the scene of the year. Dana Stevens is going to be there. Griffin Newman is going to be there. Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer, formerly of Film Spotting SVU, all the Film Spotting friends you know and love. And you can hang out with them too. There's a meet and greet opportunity, Josh, before the show. We can't wait to finally get out to New
1: York and do our live show, our first
0: real live show outside of
1: Chicago. Yeah, I think that's right for sure. Can't wait to hang out with those folks, listeners as well, and maybe hear your. Music moment pick from weird could be possibly could happen All or right.
0: funniest moment or hey, maybe a scene of the year. Josh, watch out. Wow. <laughs> filmspotting.net is where you can find ticket info Filmspotting.net or filmspottingnet slash events. We've been talking recently, Josh, about our new membership platform, and we wanted to alert everyone to a couple of fun things that you could participate in. If you are a film spotting family member, there are four different tiers, and included in a few of those tiers is bonus content. Every month, we put out an extra show. For October, we did a Spielberg draft. We joked about it a little bit last week, I think. I confused you guys a bit. Sam, our producer, jumped on the show as well with the Serpentine. The snake draft approach. You mm-hmm. got to go first, though. You got the first Spielberg pick. You had your your choice of all oh, of his work. That was all a scam. It was all a scam. I got to come back around and get the number three and number four picks. And even though I lost the draft, it does seem things may have worked out in my favor. We got this note from Will Creech. I, I hope I'm saying that correctly.
1: I hope you're not because he takes a shot at me here. Adam wins, cliche. Adam wins the Spielberg draft by a mile. Josh didn't seem to know where he was. I was really afraid he was going to pick fantastic Mr. Fox at some point. And Sam seemed to be trolling the whole idea. Yeah, that checks out. Seriously, catch me if you can and Temple of Doom. But what really put Adam's Festival over the top seemed unintentional, and that's the thematically rich pairing of Schindler's List and Munich. I can't think of any other films in Spielberg's filmography that seem to be in conversation with each other like these two. After the horrors of Schindler's List, any viewer has to feel like Israel has the moral right to get revenge in whatever manner they choose. And then Munich explores the corrosiveness of that kind of supposedly absolute moral authority. Josh's festival would be a lot of fun, but Adams is the only one that's going to result in a long, intense, fascinating conversation late into the night. Nice work.
0: Thank you, Will. Now, the embarrassing part is I wish it had occurred to me in the moment that I was closing out my draft, my four and five picks with two movies that were so obviously well paired together. It was late at night, Josh. A l- little bit that.
1: more of a panic pick, maybe.
0: Yeah, maybe. But also, I got five of my nine favorite Spielberg films. So I felt good about it. And so far, I am just edging you out. You have a good showing. We gave Film Spotting family members an opportunity to listen and then vote, determine who won the draft. Remember, I know you'll never forget, nor will I, that you crushed me in the A24 draft. This one a lot tighter. I'm actually ahead of you right now, I think, by only one or two votes, so 39% to your 37%. Sam, a decent showing, despite the fact that Will accurately notes he might have just been making the whole thing up as he went along and trying to subvert everything.
1: Yeah, 25%. That's better than I would have predicted. Are these final votes, or or do I still have a shot It's
0: here? still active. It's still active. Oh, Exciting. Yeah, especially maybe we get some new Film Spotting family members. They get access to the show, they get access to the vote, could put you over the top. All right, we'll see what happens. Another fun activity is the Film Spotting family greatest films of all time poll. Yeah, we stole it straight from sight and sound. Everybody's waiting for that list to come out, maybe now looking like the first week of December. And we thought, let's do our own list. Let's go ahead and get all of our members together. Let's have them submit their ballots, unranked, single titles, the 10 greatest films of all time, and they can define greatest however they want, just like all of the BFI voters do. We'll assemble them all. We'll tally the votes. We'll submit our own, and later on another bonus show, we will announce the winners of the Film Spotting Family Top 10. We will also hear our individual lists, so mine, yours, Josh, Sam, And the great Michael Phillips, he actually had a ballot, so he'll be sharing what he selected in the BFI vote.
1: Now, I know some votes have already come in. Do we have any clear? We've got a bunch. Okay. Do you know offhand a title or two that have popped up on most, if not all, of those ballots so far?
0: Yeah, I don't want to sway things too much. And really, we have over 100 responses already, a lot
1: of data to go through well we could go but, the other direction is there yeah. a title you've seen come through that surprised you that definitely. you didn't
0: expect <laughs> I'm I'm not going to reveal it just yet but there are at least 10 or 15 one-offs in there maybe more okay Josh that you know are very personal mm-hmm. choices but in terms of your first question there are definitely some titles that you would expect to be on there. I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that there's a good chance, at least right now, The Godfather could make the top 10. Yeah. Jaws could make the top 10. Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Some titles like that you expect to see. So far, what I'm noticing is the top 10 vote getters. Nothing shocks me,
1: nor should it probably. All right. Well, I can't wait to see the final results when we have those all compiled. And yeah, especially... I'm curious to hear from you and Michael, because we did this in 2012, what has shifted in our lists then compared to our lists now? Oh, I'm going to have a very different list. Yeah, I I haven't really dug into this at all, but I am anticipating some significant changes on mine.
0: Yeah, I think I'm probably going to have at least seven big picks, and it's not because I've seen movies in the past 10 years that need to make the cut. It's more just reassessing how I'm approaching the list a little bit and also realizing that I think in 2012, my approach was flawed, quite frankly. I don't like my list when I look back on my 2012 list at all. Well, now you've got a chance to redo it. For more information about becoming a film spotting family member, getting access to that bonus content, hearing that new show we're going to put out for November about our greatest films of all time poll and getting to participate in the poll, you can do that by going to filmspottingfamily.com. That's filmspottingfamily.com.
1: This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it is part two of their Conduct Unbecoming pairing. So they're talking about Todd Field's Tar, one of the best-reviewed movies of the year. Previously, they had discussed Stephen Freer's Dangerous Liaisons from 1988 with John Malkovich, Michelle Pfeiffer, Glenn Close, and Keanu Reeves. So in this episode this week, they'll be comparing those two directly. Your Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net.
0: I have heard, and I don't know if this will help promote the show or turn a few listeners away, I've heard that maybe one Tasha Robinson, who we've certainly heard be a bit of a contrarian. Can I guess? Here on the the show before. Hates tire. Yeah, go for it. Hates tire. I I don't know that that's true because I haven't. Yet, listen for myself, but I understand that she may not be as enthusiastic about tar as most of the rest of us. And so, if you're looking forward to potentially being frustrated by that or finding a kindred spirit who doesn't understand what all the fuss is about, Tasha and the Next Picture Show might be your outlet.
1: Well, it's gotten near unanimous praise. So, I'm very curious to hear what Tasha's take is on it.
0: The Next Picture Show is hosted by Tasha, Keith Vip, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. You can get new episodes. Every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I run by this old, this old lady. I was running, hollering, cutting a fool boy. This old lady, she stopped me. She said, "Running around, catching a boy that light. In moonlight, black boys look blue." You blue. That's what i going to call you. Blue. Mahershala Ali and Barry Jenkins, Moonlight. It's time for some poll results. Josh, a couple weeks ago, we asked you, what film released in the past decade should make Sight and Sound's Top 100 Films of All Time list. This question, inspired, of course, by that once-a-decade list that we are expecting in early December. The wording is maybe a little bit tricky because we're not necessarily saying that you have to feel like this movie has to be on the list as one of the 10 greatest films of all time. But if a film from the past decade was going to make it, what film should it be? I feel pretty good about the options we gave Josh, but we allowed another. The choices were, in addition to Moonlight, George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Céline Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And if you didn't like those four, you could write in your own.
1: Yeah, other did receive 10% of the vote, but then came Barry Jenkins Moonlight, 11% of the vote there. Portrait of a Lady on Fire got 13% of the vote. And then a little jump here, second place with 28% of the vote went to Fury Road. So Parasite took this one fairly handily, I would say 37%
0: of the vote. Sven Britt says, speaking of the wording of this poll, cruel of you to phrase it as should instead of is most likely to, because should, should, logically speaking, allow us to vote for more than one. If that were a possibility, I'd go for both Parasite and Moonlight with no hesitation. Moonlight was an absolutely shattering experience for me as a gay man who grew up in Florida, whose first vote was in the election where Floridian voters cast their ballots to ban gay marriage and strip even heterosexual civil unions of their rights. I hadn't imagined such a movie could be nominated for Best Picture, let alone win. But Parasite is so meticulously crafted, cerebral but accessible, profound but entertaining, that I simply have to vote for it. Plus, it'd be nice to see more foreign
1: language films on the list. We also heard from Jeremy Webner-Berman. I'm voting for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Spellbinding, mystical, perfect. I can see it on the
0: poster now, Jeremy. Mark Larson says, opted for other with the comment, all four of these, because it's true. We can certainly find at least four films in the prior Sight and sound poll that don't measure up to these four. Maybe not the top 10, but yeah, talking about the overall, the the top 100
1: here. I I can see a case for him, Josh. Yeah, I think so. David Schumacher also weighed in. When I clicked on view results, I was fully expecting other to be in the lead by about 10, 15%. It just seems too obvious to me that under the skin is really the only possible answer here. Kind of shocked to find out that there don't seem to be too many others who share this view. Hmm. David might be one of the few who voted for me in the A24 poll
0: there. Wade McCormick in Kansas city, Missouri says four great films, but I would have expected other to be doing much better. So many incredible and deserving films were released in the last 10 years. Phantom Thread, The Witch, Carol, Burning, Holy Motors, Under the Skin. If I was actually casting a ballot and had to pick a single film from the last 10 years, though, I like this, Josh, it
1: would be Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. All right. Here's Ian T. McFarland. Do we make epics anymore? Studios are still interested in expensive projects, but only when they're single episodes within a larger series. Christopher Nolan, one of the few filmmakers who appears to be able to make whatever he feels like, leveraged that power to make something that feels just as much like 2001 A Space Odyssey as it does Lawrence of Arabia. The characters of interstellar travel galaxies and dimensions, but that breadth is nothing compared to the enormous emotions Nolan is able to work into his feature. Sacrifice, parenthood, and humanity all figure in as much as any other film has been able to utilize. Ian,
0: I like it. Bold choice. David says, my choice is Roma. I believe it compares favorably with the technical wizardry of Miller's Fury Road, the class critique of Parasite, the
1: cinematography and emotional stakes of both Portrait and Moonlight. I think you're onto something there, David. Our last comment comes from Darren. Parasite feels like the best fit. But I went with other, because movies like Bing Liu's Minding the Gap, my write-in, and Kirsten Johnson's Camera Person shifted my perception of what a documentary could accomplish. We have severe underrepresentation of documentaries on the Sight and Sound list. Minding the Gap has the widest scope in terms of what it's exploring, and an equally narrow scope in terms of its actual subject matter. And in terms of cinema, the score, the cinematography, and the editing are all remarkable. Here's hoping Sight and Sound welcomes a few of these modern entries. That would be wonderful to see.
0: Obviously, a golden brick winner here on film spotting, and I always love to see documentaries get some attention on lists like this as well. Thank you, Darren. Thank you to everybody who wrote in with such great feedback. Our new poll has us looking ahead to Spielberg's The Fablemans, which will be rolling out here into theaters over the next couple of weeks. You coined the term last week, Josh, a tourography as a way to describe Nicely not done. only yeah, James Gray's Armageddon Time, but movies like it to various degrees, fictionalized memoirs from some of our finest directors. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that fits. So here's what we're asking. Who's made the best autobiographical film or films of the last decade? So again, we're looking at 2012 to 2022. So something like Malik's Tree of Life can't make the cut here. It came out in 2011. And we are focusing once more on the filmmakers. So here are the options we're giving you. Pedro Almodovar with 2019's Pain and Glory, Lee Isaac Chung, who made 2020's Minari, Alfonso Cuaron, 2018's aforementioned Roma, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, Joanna Hogg, two films, The Souvenir Part 1 and The Souvenir Part 2, and then Richard Linklater, also two films, 2014's Boyhood and this year's Apollo 10 and a Half. To my mind, I think even something like Dazed and Confused feels autobiographical. I feel like there's this strain in almost everything Linklater does. So I don't know if that's going to give him the leg up here in this poll. We will offer the option of other as well. I was a little surprised to see
0: Boyhood initially among Sam's options just because having recently seen and talked about Apollo 10 and a half this year, I know that that film is really autobiographical. And so Boyhood at best, and I Google this to confirm it, seems semi-autobiographical. So of course, they're is likely to be some shades of Linklater's own upbringing in the story we see play out. But I know Apollo 10 and a half, again, he was much closer to his actual life. Nevertheless, I think they both belong here, and it's tough to overlook those as much as I love Boyhood. Still, not a surprise. My favorite film on this list is Lady Bird, and Boyhood's really the only one that's that close to it, as much as I do appreciate some of the other films. So I'm going Gerwig.
1: Yeah, the filmmaker aspect does throw me a bit because my clear favorite film among this group is Roma, and I want to go that direction. But I think of something like Souvenir and Souvenir Part 2, both films I liked equally. I think the first one made my top 10 list of the year. So if you're weighing the body of work and choosing the filmmaker, I might have to go with Joanna Hogg in this poll.
0: She might have another entry. In here as well. I'm really excited to see The Eternal Daughter coming out ah, with that's right. Tilda Swinton and Hog later this year, I think in December, Josh. I have no idea if there's any crossover into her own life or not. I try to stay ignorant of such things going into films as much as I can, but wanted to throw out there that she may have another entry onto this list. In early voting, Gerwig is just ahead of Linklater and Cuaron, but your vote may have an impact Leave a comment. Vote for your favorite now at filmspotting.net.
1: You know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything. Whenever parties you go to, boys you meet, drugs you take.
0: Dad, oh my God, what even is that?
1: These are my moves.
0: Oh, that's so embarrassing. That's not embarrassing. That's from the trailer for After Sun, which opens in limited release this weekend. It's the feature debut of Scottish filmmaker Charlotte Wells. The film premiered at Cannes earlier this year and has been playing to much acclaim and to much heartache and some tears on the festival circuit since then. Before I say more, I did want to just quickly note, Josh, that we're not going to spoil anything about this movie. Anything we talk about are elements that you can find in every plot description of this movie and presumably every review of this movie. You can also find a lot of it in the trailer itself. But if, like me, up until seeing it, you've avoided knowing anything about the film, really just knowing it's father and daughter, and you don't know anything about the conceit of it, the structure, the formal elements, and you want to keep it that way, then I'd say stop listening right now. (laughs) Skip this. Because I really appreciated going into this film the way I did, and we might talk about that a little bit more here in a bit. The movie is about a young woman's memories of a holiday she took with her troubled father 20 years earlier. The father is played by Paul Meskel, who we saw recently in God's Creatures. The daughter, Sophie, is played by newcomer Frankie Corio and is a grown-up by Celia Rolson-Hall. Like me, Josh, you probably knew a little bit about the movie's reputation. Before seeing it, I'm sure we both noticed some... Of the people we follow on Letterboxd, logging it and praising it, giving it high star ratings. A lot of fellow critics who caught up with it at various festivals were having some pretty intense emotional responses to it. Did the movie surprise you in the way it handled its emotional material?
1: Boy, this this film left me stunned. And I I knew that because I try to stay through the end credits of, of most movies I go to just to, you know, let that time for things to percolate, take a break, take a breath, um, you know, see what I could pick up from the credits. If I have time, I like to do that. I stayed through the credits of After Sun because I couldn't move. It was just it was speaking to your question about the emotions, I don't think it was till that point that I realized how how moving the film had been. Mm-hmm. how deceptively overwhelming. It was, I felt some of that while watching it, but I never felt the full force of it. Some of this has to do with the final shot, which we will not talk about the final scene, really. Um, Certainly that is part of the reason, but I think it was again, the stealthy way Wells has constructed this story. She's constructed it almost in the same manner. And it's too precise for this to be the case. But it feels like it's been constructed in the same manner that the main character is experiencing her memories. Yeah, it's all of that's, a piece. That's the trick. That's the trick. And I think that's why it hit me that way. Is there's this growing sense of, you know, the emotions at play, the dynamics at play, the ones I could relate to in some ways, the ones I couldn't but could appreciate from afar. And I was invested in the way you are with most well-made, intimate, familial dramas. But yeah, this sense of just being overwhelmed by it that didn't hit me to the end. It's not just a matter of having a great final scene. It's a matter of how the thing was made from frame one, frame one. This could have the best opening scene of the year that is interesting. The first time you're watching it and there are details I noticed that I thought, remember that, I wonder if that's going to, that choice, that particular little visual choice is going to come back into play. And then the movie goes on and you're like, oh, yeah, everything about that first shot was intentional in a way that um, is crucial to how this film works. So this is this is a stunner.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I tweeted after seeing it that it can't be a first feature. Right. Because of how sophisticated and mature it is visually and also emotionally, like you said, really from from the first moment. In the first frame, and I like your choice of words, deceptively overwhelming, stealthy. Yes, it really does sneak up on you. It's a film that washes over you the more you sit with it, but especially as it accumulates and it builds to that final scene that you mentioned. But I say it feels like it shouldn't be or can't be a first feature. And yet it also feels to me like a first feature in one particular way. And I regret That I'm going to say all this and I can't share the exact wording or all of the details. If someone out there knows what I'm referencing and can point me in the right direction, please do because I've forgotten it. But I know it's one of my, or I'm pretty sure, Josh, it's one of my two favorite writers, either Paul Auster or John Irving, wrote something at some point that has always lingered with me about why debut novels are usually so good and sometimes the writer's best. And I think this can apply to albums and a lot of art. And I do want to throw out the disclaimer that I don't want to suggest here that there aren't many great films in Wells' future. But the debuts are so potent because the artist has been working towards telling this story their entire lives. The next thing they do is the build up and accumulation of a couple of years maybe in their lives, even if it perhaps taps into some things from their past and their personal life. but. I have seen a few things here and there and my senses that Charlotte Wells has been mysterious about exactly how personal the story and events are, which I think is great. But you can very easily see that older Sophie in this movie trying to come to terms with her relationship with and feelings for her father through examining her memories in this footage. You can see that as a stand in for her and the filmmaking process that resulted in this movie. You can see young Sophie then as a stand-in for her as a young girl. And at the risk of playing armchair psychiatrist any further, what is more important to understanding your own identity than reckoning with everything that this character is trying to reconcile here? Surely she's been wrestling with this, if not down to every specific detail, but the broad strokes of it her whole life. And she's, She's managed to manifest it here in such a a beautiful and heartbreaking way.
1: Yeah, and that personal intimacy that is brought to the story is crucial and a key part to why the film is so good. But it's also something that a lot of you know, first-time filmmakers will bring to their material, which is understandable. One of the other things about Aftersun that makes it distinct from those, I think, is, as we've hinted at, the ways she goes about it. So I want to talk a little bit about the different viewpoints we get in this movie. Very early on, we do understand that Sophie as an adult is largely telling this or experiencing this, I should say. And we see her scouring video footage from this trip when she was younger, when she was 11, trying to fully understand what happened in these couple of days. But then Wells and the editor here, Blair McClendon, They weave very incisively those home movie snippets we see with these straightforward third-person scenes of their time in Turkey together. So this could just be, you know, like any other drama we're watching. We have that distance removed. We're there with them, but it's not always from one of the characters' points of view. Yet, we also get these other scenes that very much are from young Sophie's point of view. And I love the touch in so many of those where the camera drifts a little bit away Mm. from the father's face. And it just gives us that sense again of we don't fully have a handle and she doesn't either of this memory or who her father was in that moment because the camera is actually doing that drifting away. And then Mm -hmm. on top of these elements, we get these very jarring flashes to the adult Sophie on this strobe lit Dance floor, and that returns to the, the film's ending that I mentioned in a shattering way. But the decision to tell this story, to share these memories I, I want to stop saying tell this story because that's not ex- there's something more distinct happening here. The decision to share these memories from all these different vantage points is crucial, and then the skill again with the uh, editor here, Blair McClendon, to know just when to shift from one to the other is for me what makes this so masterful.
0: Yeah, I think the use of the word drifts there is really important because the way she renders movement is something that really stuck with me about this film. The attention to arms, to hands, to feet, to birds in the sky, to parasailers, to the footage itself that we sometimes see rewinding. We see a Polaroid photo of father and daughter begin to develop but never come fully into focus a powerful visual metaphor for Wells exploration of identity and a relationship that is just in the process of forming. It never gets to finish everything here. Even if it's not kinetically, so the camera isn't wildly moving, but everything is in motion. Mm -hmm. She captures the fractured fleetingness of memory how hard it is to reconcile something that is this complex and is unfinished and and not just how it works not just how that process of reconciliation and memory works but how it feels yeah. the movie the movie gets it how it feels we experience it along with these characters really i think we have to say these these multiple characters and i don't know what the right word to use is either i want to warn people a little bit or or help them come to this film we're talking about heartbreaking and how heavy the movie is but as we both said it's devastating in a subtle way in a profound way but in a subtle way this isn't grave of the fireflies this isn't a movie that's trying to punch you in the stomach and leave you at the end feeling crushed and hopeless it's not but but that doesn't mean it doesn't still hit you in a really emotional way
1: well to go back to that image you mentioned of the polaroid which is a a great one to call out. That's lightly held. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's when we describe it, it can sound maybe heavy and too symbolic, too metaphorical, but it's not in the moment in the scene, how it happens, right. It's very lightly held. And uh, I'll call out another visual detail that I think for me works the same way because it it's a moment that's conveying a lot of different information, some of which I won't talk about. But, there's a shot of the father walking towards the beach at night and it's almost surreal. We're not quite sure what we're looking at because the screen is so dark, but the back of Mescal's head, his, his skin is incredibly fair. And so in the darkness of night, all we see is this stretch of the back of his neck between his hair and the shirt he's wearing that almost glows in the dark and you can see how this is working in the same way that Polaroid does, right? It's it's giving us a sense of here's this man she was trying to understand then, she's trying to understand now as an adult, and all she gets is a little sliver, a little illuminated sliver on the screen of the larger mystery at play here. And there, it, it's almost like every other shot has that sort of loaded potency to it, but also without bearing it and holding it too heavily or pushing it too hard there's a lightness to all of this and i'm glad you said that there are very serious things happening here but there is also a lot of lightness in the performances i Mm -hmm. want to talk about the performances a little bit and this the repartee between father and son here because i love how they they tease each other in ways they're clearly enjoying each other's company Enjoying this time to just have together, you get the sense that Sophie is mostly with her mother, and so this is a special time for them to have mm-hmm. just together. And you know, Mescal, who is is really good in God's creatures, he's got a difficult task here to shift among these various roles as this guy, right? He has to be the caregiver, he's in charge, but he's a friend kind of it. it it's I get the sense that your father but also friend if you know you don't see your child on a daily basis you're a mentor you can be a mentor but then this goes back to what you're saying in our top 5 there you're also a rule enforcer and you can't just be a rule enforcer when you feel like it that's got to be part of your identity so i do think Mescal manages to even though he's playing a person who is purposefully supposed to be at a remove we get a sense of him wrestling with all of those roles mm-hmm. and then corio you know you need You need an unconsciousness in a a child performance, and she has that. But this kid in particular, for where she is at life, that crucial stage around 11 where you're – the way I put it when I wrote about the movie is that, you know, you might not want to hold your parents' hand anymore. You you just make that decision. She also needs a self-awareness. And that's crucial to this role. I think Choreo, even as a novice, has that. Uh, And again, just so many fun scenes of them together, sparring with each other, teasing each other, caring for each other Mm -hmm. in ways that that gain importance as the movie proceeds.
0: Yeah, I'll talk about one of those moments, though I am going to say I'm going to save my favorite mescal moment in the film, what I think is his best acting moment in the film, and there are many to choose from, because I'm pretty sure... We're going to talk about him in this movie more as we get through the end of the year. But we go back to our top five list, and I was talking about Say Anything. I don't know that Charlotte Wells was actually paying homage to that film or not, but there's a moment we heard it in the clip from the trailer where he says to her, you can tell me about anything. Whatever you do, anything you get involved in, you can always tell me that. And she, of course, thinks he's being a little bit silly because those are things she might want to keep private, or things that she's not ready to think about yet, or is just starting to at her age think about. The movie's very much about that as well—just crossing that threshold into adulthood, yes. whether you're you're fully ready or not. But the difference here, the significant difference here between something like say anything in this dynamic between these two is that that line's coming from a father who absolutely means it, but because of his depression, I think we can say, I think the movie clearly suggests it without explicitly stating it. He'll never be able to reciprocate that honesty. And what I mean is that what he's feeling and experiencing isn't something he or really anybody can articulate. She actually expresses it in a really powerful, haunting way in the film. And again, this is in the trailer as well, but in a later part of it, Sophie says, as she's just kind of laying on the bed and he asks her, what's up or what's oh. she feeling? Oh man. She says, don't you ever feel like you've just done a whole amazing day and then you come home and feel tired and down and feels like your bones don't work. They're just tired and everything is tired. Like you're sinking. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's haunting, as I said, because of the beat that Wells takes there, the look of recognition on Meskel's face. It all suggests that she's describing exactly what he often feels. And also, if she's feeling it, Josh, in that moment, the movie doesn't dwell on it, but you have to contemplate it as a viewer. What if she is inclined towards the same type of depression that he is? Well, that's so- it. Yeah. Right. So Mescal's processing two troubling thoughts at once, but he has to keep up the facade, which is what you have to do as a parent. And all he can say is what he says. Well, we're here to have a good time. Mm. And he tries to change the subject, even though he
1: can't. And can I, since we're talking about that scene in detail, can I, can I just, I'll, I'll mention the thing that just shatters me about it is so she's in on the bed, as you described, he's in the bathroom. So they don't see each other at this point. Right. He's brushing his teeth. And I believe after she finishes saying that his reaction is a pause and he spits the toothpaste at the mirror, essentially at at himself. himself. And it's just, it's capturing everything you just said about the questions he's asking himself, the anger he feels about that, the fear he's feeling. And then, yeah, that, that choice to push it away and, and say, you know, and and you can understand that choice. You know, you might want to, the therapist might say, uh, what a teachable moment or something, you know, to have a talk about what you're going through and you might have these feelings too. And here's how, but this isn't a guy in that place, right? He is not yeah. in that place. And um, so his choice he makes, which is completely understandable is to push through and try to find that happiness. And yeah, we've danced a little lightly around this, but I think this is, you know, <laughs> the major thing that the movie is is exploring is alongside her coming of age as an independent person not a little girl who loves her dad as much in the same way but in a different way this is about a girl who is learning things about adulthood including her father's struggle to survive it mm-hmm. and that's something that is terrifying um you know from from her perspective and i think the movie captures that in incredible ways. Let's just go back real quick to what I
0: touched on in the setup and I want your thoughts on it. And there's no real point here, I suppose, other than maybe I'm critiquing a little bit the way the movie is being marketed or positioned, which is irrelevant. But every description of this film, as I said, and the trailer tells you what the framing device is, tells you that this is about a person who's reflecting on an experience, but if you just went into the movie other than picking up on some things very early on that you really have to be paying attention to, you wouldn't know that you would be watching a film that is about a father and daughter on vacation and this coming of age story that it is 95% of the screen time roughly is that. So it wouldn't be inaccurate to just describe this film as something like Sophie and her father learn important things about themselves and life Mm -hmm. while on vacation together, whatever it is, and just leave it at that. I enjoyed being a little bit confused. I enjoyed being challenged by the strobe light inserts, by the playing back of footage, the replaying of moments, the reflections in TVs, the visual connections the movie makes between Sophie and someone older that the movie hasn't introduced us to yet. If I've read the plot description, I know what that all signifies, I think. This isn't 2001. It's not Mulholland Drive. I don't want to suggest that Wells doesn't give you really everything you need to process what is playing out. But I loved having to do a little bit of work myself and engage with it that way versus knowing the conceit going in. I'm just bummed out that most people are probably going to walk in knowing all
1: that. Yeah, I think that's its master stroke. is the subtle, artful, you know, it's piercing, but never pointed uh, is the way I describe it in exploring the father's troubled inner state. And, and you said, you know, for me, I think you're probably right. You know, the vast percentage, whether it's 95% or or whatever is exploring just, you know, this time in this relationship, but that inner state is seeping into every mm-hmm. percent Yes. And that is how, that's what you feel and what makes After Sun distinct.
0: After Sun is currently playing in limited release. If you see it and you really have to and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. An on-air production meeting question for you, Josh. Sam and I were talking about this a little bit earlier today. Do we have to? It certainly qualifies in every artistic way. Do we have to consider After Sun as a strong contender for the film spot and Golden Brick, as of right now, as I glance at Box Office Mojo, I think it is expanding to some more screens. It opened in only four theaters. Widest release so far is 45 theaters. Yes, A24 is releasing it, but again, widest release, 45 theaters. Domestic gross right now, three hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars. Certainly feels like a movie. That still very much could, despite everything we're saying about it and whatever reach we have, still feels like a movie that could very much slide under the radar for people and is worthy of the golden brick.
1: Yeah, let's see. Let's see how it does. I mean, I, I'll be honest. <laughs> it's And I have, looking at the list, I have, I think, two films, at least on our short list that I really, really like. So it's not like there aren't other strong contenders for me right right now. This would be the runaway winner of the Golden Brick. So it does come down to how much attention it gets towards the end of the year. If it starts really making waves at the box office and a lot of people are getting a chance to see it, then maybe we think about pulling back from that. I think, as you said, it's going to get a lot of attention on our top 10 show and at our wrap party for all those categories. But if it's not picking up steam, I want to give it every shout it can get. And if putting it in the golden, in golden brick contention, where it's a strong candidate to win, um we can give it even a little bit more attention. I'm all for that. So let's see what happens with it. I don't I don't know that making, you know, the top ten lists for a vast number of critics, it's great. It will hit certain yeah. audiences. No,
0: I, that doesn't change anything
1: for me. Right. But I, I want like I want more than critics to get a chance right. to appreciate this movie. And that's part of the reason behind the golden brick.
0: Yeah. Maybe a first time thing here in the history of the golden brick. We're gonna put After Sun on the page as a trial. <laughs> as a trial film because it certainly is deserving and we will see how things play out maybe if it does as you said pick up some steam and more eyeballs get on it and we feel like it makes more sense to use that award to shine a light on something that is even more obscure then maybe we'll go in that direction you can live wherever you want to live see whoever you want to be time let's get back to our top five inspired by after Sun. it is our top five father daughter screen duos josh rat your number two pick
1: at number two i have dick johnson and kirsten johnson from dick johnson is dead this was my number six film of 2020, a follow-up to her great camera person. Here she and her father decide to document his last days as early signs of dementia creep in. They do this by recording frank conversations, but also goofier, more experimental elements. So we get these elaborately staged dramatizations of the ways Dick could die. Very black humor going on here. And then we also get these ostentatiously designed fantasy visions of Dick's glam afterlife. Now this is in parallel to after son in that it uses the medium of film to understand a relationship with a father in this case, however, it's happening in real time. You you don't have as much of that reflective nature of it. We're watching this actually take place. Dick Johnson is dead is still on Netflix. And so I was jumping around watching bits and pieces of it again and yeah talk about a a tough emotional sit i've mentioned on the show how so much of this film reminds me of my own relationship with my grandfather who's still with us but has definitely declined in the time the movie first came out so kind of rough to rewatch some of these scenes speaking of different family dynamics you know father daughter grandfather grandson while watching these moments i came across an incredible scene that i'd forgotten it's between Dick and his daughter, where he repositions their relationship and imagines himself not as her father, but her little brother.
0: <laughs> what do you What do you do when I'm gone? Well, that's what I'm asking you to tell me. <laughs> no, I don't know what to do without you. <laughs> you be Aww. careful, okay? I will be careful. You have this this little brother <laughs> that you need to take care of. Oh, are you my little brother? I'm your little brother, who is now demented You know. <laughs> Oh my god, that's so cute that I'm your little brother. Yeah. You're my little brother. Yeah, I'm your little brother. I'm and? no longer your father. I'm your little brother. What did the little brother do? Uh, he just takes along behind. He gets in your way. No, little brothers do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, little know. brothers are fun. Yeah, are they? Yeah. Okay. Uh-oh. I love you. Mm. Your eyes get a little like teary. Is yeah. that, is that, is that, are those real tears or that's just your eyes are that way? That's real, they're real tears. Oh. I'm sorry to admit it. <laughs>
1: Such tough, honest stuff there from the both of them. I love how, you know, as the person not only deeply emotionally invested in this, but crafting it, forming it as director, Kirsten Johnson is tough, is honest, and also is able to make a movie that is deeply honoring. I also like this film on my list because it looks at the father-daughter relationship from the other side of the telescope in a way when the parental role shifts to the child. I am nowhere near at that point, but you know, you get a taste of this as your kids are either in or approaching young adulthood. And this documentary offers a picture of how that relationship can shift and can change in huge ways. So Dick Johnson is dead by number two, father, daughter film. And yeah, it's, it's right there for you on Netflix. If for some reason you've never watched it. So good.
0: And a film that I was also thinking about forming my list as you said, ties back to After Sun nicely, not only in terms of some autobiographical elements, though Dick Johnson is dead more blatantly so, and also using the medium of film. And it's both of those connections that put me in a position, Josh, where I just couldn't do it. I couldn't just put one of these two movies on. I haven't cheated in a long time on a top five. And if you want to take me down for it, you are welcome to. But for this list, I felt like Dick and Kirsten Johnson from Dick Johnson is Dead and Michael and Sarah Polly from Stories We Tell. It was just too rich of a pairing. You've got two documentarians in this case interacting with their actual fathers, using storytelling to process family secrets and a troubled upbringing in one case and to process the fear of death in the other. And it's, it's too simple a reduction in both cases, but one is more of a selfish act Not in a negative sense, but it's about the filmmaker, Polly, casting her father to explore and better understand her identity. And the other one is maybe more selfless. It's Kirsten Johnson casting her father to help him explore and come to terms with his fate. Now, I say it's too simple. It's also too simple because Polly is such an empathetic filmmaker and because Kirsten Johnson isn't just doing this for His benefit, the line that we get early on in her voiceover is, but now it's upon us talking about his condition. Yeah, the beginning of his disappearance and we are not accepting it. It's we (laughs) who are not accepting it. They're going through this together. She's processing it all along with him, but it's still and we talked about this when we reviewed it on the show upon its release. It still is a film that feels like a gift to her father. And here too, maybe a little bit to herself. She talks about, doesn't she, that making camera person brought back memories of her mother and she realized how little footage she had of her. And so part of this too was her trying to not only honor him while he was alive, and she does so in many effective ways, but also having this footage for herself to look back on later in life when he is ultimately gone. And it had to be so high on my list too, Josh, just because of that that indelible moment, the end of this film, which I won't give away if people haven't seen it. I'll just say there's a reaction, an exchange of emotion between father and daughter that kind of breaks your heart, but also fills you with such joy. And for a movie to be able to pull that off, I think it's obviously deserving of this list. And to go to stories we tell for another second, the narrative layers And the father-daughter layers that Polly is exploring here, she's trying to figure out. She's investigating who her real father was, and she's reenacting scenes from childhood. She's an actor playing her father in these recreations, but then she's also interviewing her dad, Michael Polly, and he's an actor by trade or has been. So then she's using him as an actor to provide a voiceover for this whole affair, and she's using him to reveal truths, facts, but also emotional truths.
1: I always thought, she does look like me, got that little straight nose. Yeah, definitely, this is all nonsense, but it's fun. Who do you think your father is this week, Sarah? (laughs) The joke got bigger and bigger because we'd each compare you with one of these three actors. They all knew of the three actors in question and had much fun with the characteristics that they had in common with Sarah. Sarah laughed. They all laughed, and the comparisons became a recurring source of amusement. Was it Tom, or Wayne, or Jeff? If you could just take back that one line. Yeah. Was it Tom, or Wayne, or Jeff?
0: That relationship between her and her father that you do explore here in this film, if you read her new book, which I'm just a little ways through, but the first chapter of it, Polly's memoir called run towards the danger that first chapter in particular, I'm sure others do as well, but that first chapter in particular really is about her interesting life as a child actress and the dynamic between her and her father that really had them. It harkens back to say anything a little bit really had them as equals, but they never should have been. She was way too young and he was almost surely allowing way too much and wasn't providing enough guidance and enough guardrails. So if Stories We Tell was a film that connected with you and you were interested in that relationship, you can dive in even further in that new book from Polly.
1: Yeah, I can't complain too much on on this cheat. It is a nice pairing. And yeah, I, I love Stories We Tell as well. An honorable mention for me on this list. Absolutely. Okay, I think we're down to our number one picks. We're here. Mine is shukichi and noriko from late spring it's homework time as soon as listeners started sharing suggestions on social for this list i knew that i would be catching up with a yasujiro ozu film for consideration on twitter aaron bergstrom put it plainly when i asked what titles i should put on my list most ozu movies and then on my larson film facebook page former production assistant andy mitchell gregory he named late spring his number one pick Listener Kevin McLenathan posted an image after that from the movie and added, there is one correct answer to this question. So I did indeed watch Late Spring, not only because of Andy and Kevin's nudging, but also because it's one of the titles still embarrassingly left on my official blind spotting list. We put that together, Adam, I think it was 2015. I've had plenty of time to watch Late Spring, but it wasn't until now that I finally did it. The story centers on Shukichi, a 50-something widower played by Chishu Yu, who lives with his 27-year-old daughter, Noriko, played by Satsuko Hara. They have a teasing, tender relationship. Noriko wears this wide smile in the early scenes, walks around with an air of contentment, laughs off her father's, you know, gruffness about bringing him tea and things like that. They both seem very happy with their lot in life, even if it's a bit unusual compared to how other families are structured, or at least young women's lives are structured at this age. Even so, Shukichi, who is influenced by Noriko's meddling aunt, suggests to his daughter one day that she strongly consider getting married, and then to move things along, he even hints that he's considering marriage himself to a younger widow. Now, if you've seen any Ozu, and sadly this is only my third film of his, so I still have more work to do, you know that... This familiar family drama is told with quiet reservation. You have static, carefully composed shots, reserved conversations, but Ozu brings piercing perception that has this emotional intensity, brings an emotional intensity to the material and the the demure but powerful lead performances. They have a lot to do with this as well. I don't even want to say how things unfold. It doesn't seem like it, but suspense, you know, plays a role in this, in this narrative, I do want to point, though, to one late film conversation that Shukichi has with a friend.
0: So he says here
1: to his friend, It's pointless to have a daughter. You raise them and then off they go. If they're unwed, you worry. Yet if they do marry, you feel let down. I'm Mm. not quite there yet with our daughters in terms of, you know, leaving the house, perhaps to live with someone else. But you can see it's, you know, on the horizon. I hope that's not how I feel about it in the years ahead. That's can sound maybe a bit harsh, but in the context of late spring, it's a poignant observation coming from this man in this context. So incredible stuff from Ozu. Late spring, currently available on the Criterion channel if you subscribe to that. And yeah, homework, that was solid enough to be my number one father-daughter duo.
0: Shaming me with your number one pick. And I think not only shamed by you, but shamed by my own daughter, Sophie, appropriate here for this top five. I think she was one of those voices on Twitter. She said, is it the late spring memorial list?
1: Yes, it, that's it right. It has to yeah, be. She, she
0: knows it <laughs> and I haven't seen it. So I cannot put it on my list. I can only list it as a regret. Not only late spring though, for Ozu and possibly other films, but definitely an autumn afternoon is another blind spot for me that could make this list. Wanted to call out both of those films. If you didn't get to either of them on your list, Josh, my number one, I'm going more recent. And I'm going with a film that, if I'm remembering correctly, you were tougher on back when we reviewed it initially, but during our Nolan Oove review, came around on a little bit and had
1: a reappreciation for it. That sounds right. You're talking, of course, Interstellar.
0: I am Cooper and Murph. A filmmaker in Nolan, known more for the way his movies make you think versus how they make you feel, I think, fair to say. And yet, what do I focus on here with this pick as my number one? The interdimensional climax, spoilers, the, the bittersweet touching reunion at the very end, the rebuke message when 23 years are lost that reduces McConaughey to shambles and me, or how about the goodbye when Coop leaves for the mission? Goodbyes are tough with kids anyway, I can't even wrap my head around a goodbye where you are heading into complete uncertainty and truly can't know for sure that you'll ever see each other again ah
1: Murph you have no idea when you're coming
0: back no idea oh Murph
1: don't 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 make me leave like this come on Murph don't make me leave like this Murph I love you forever. You hear me? I love you forever. And I'm coming back.
0: And the hardest part to watch might actually be the nonverbal moment that you can't get in that clip that culminates his goodbye. As he's leaving, as he's driving off, McConaughey lifts up the pile of stuff, a blanket, maybe a few other things that's next to him hoping it's a callback to an earlier scene in the film where she's not supposed to follow him. She wants to go with him. And there she is hiding out in the passenger seat, lifts that up, hoping that she might actually be there this time that she's hiding out in the car and they will see her again. The face McConaughey makes just slays me in that moment, Josh. And when I think about the strength of the bond between Cooper and Murph, the determination across decades and dimensions to get back to each other. No dad and daughter movie is more powerful for me. I love interstellar. I appreciated it even more myself. The second time I watched it, I've got some support here from Scott Ross in Derwood, Maryland who had it as his number one. He said, this is one of the most moving depictions of the family sacrifices required for having to travel for work and the resentments that can breed when the reasons for this travel are not fully understood work in this case, being saving humanity from extinction, using a black hole singularity. (laughs) That's Scott Ross, who has a few more picks we'll get to, Josh, in our honorable mentions. But Interstellar, my number one, Cooper and Murph.
1: Yeah, even in my original review, which was very mixed on the film, I I did say something about, uh, you know, I grant the yearly scenes between those two have a poignancy that resonated with this father of girls. So that is an aspect I liked from the beginning. But I have to, you know, give you credit and make you feel even better here, Adam, about uh, your take on Interstellar. You talked about how you were proud of your Close Encounters letterboxed review on a recent show. I I think even better is what you wrote, a bit of a retort to me about Interstellar. Uh, And this has to do with the Dylan Thomas poem that is used three times. Totally turned me around on that. It was something I wrote off as uh, too much. But yeah, some great criticism there that did convince me. Still Interstellar, you know, probably middle to lower the pack for me among Mm -hmm. Nolan's filmography. But yeah, the needle is moving. The needle is moving on this one.
0: Well, I'm happy to hear that. And of course, I appreciate the kind words. You're right. I I have looked back on that review on occasion when I see people pop up and comment or like it. And it's one I am proud of. And purely because I actually think that even though I'm focusing on a specific element of the film, I do hopefully successfully get at Something fundamental about Nolan and his films. I think there is, I think there's legit criticism in there that isn't just about saying, Josh, you're wrong. <laughs> it goes a little deeper than that. Yes. That was, that was just the spark. Those are our top five father daughter screen duos. We both have acknowledged some honorable mentions already. I'll lead off real quick, Josh, with the rest of Scott's list. He had. Tony Erdman from your list at number five. He had Paper Moon from my list at number four, a movie that hasn't come up yet at number three, Contact, and one, we're going to get some emails saying, okay, I'm glad you guys honorably mentioned it, but why wasn't it in your top five? He has at number two, Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace. He has Will and Tom, Ben Foster and Thomas and McKenzie from that film. We also got that pick submitted by Jeremy Webner-Berman in Philly he said, this is an incredibly hard category to narrow down to just one, but there's a movie that came out just a few years ago that to me perfectly embodies a father-daughter movie. That is 2018's Leave No Trace. I would argue that no movie has created a father-daughter relationship more complex, loving, and painful than the one Deborah Granik wrote between Will and Tom. Beginning the movie with the two of them in perfect lockstep, their relationship is tested when Tom begins to question whether she in fact has the same wants and needs as her father. The movie always has one hand on the pulse of each character, and we as audience members never stop caring until the very last shot of the film, it doesn't hurt that Thomas and McKenzie and Ben Foster deliver career best performances
1: to boot. Yeah, Leave No Trace, my number six, because I'm not a cheater, Adam, I I didn't find a way to force Mm. it onto my list. It was a hard one to leave off my clear number six. I also gave some consideration to Somewhere, Sofia Coppola's personal story with Stephen Dorff and Elle Fanning. Maybe not among my favorite of hers, but I do like it for its father-daughter dynamic. A number of listeners on social mentioned Pretty in Pink, and I'm a big fan of Molly Ringwald and Harry Dean Stanton there. Me too. And I thought this was a fun way of thinking about it from Jed Deering on Twitter, at Jed Deering. Broke it down into categories. So recent, went to Marina. That's a film I have yet to see, but I know a lot of people enjoyed from this year. Surrogate, Titan, Differentiating, that's where Jed put Leave No Trace. Severing, Kajillionaire. (laughs) Pals, The Nice Guys, I think that fits. And Uh then his last category here, Sins, that's where Magnolia goes.
0: Oh man, that's a very good list. So a few more titles from me, one that has obviously come up, but I'm going to say it. And this happens from time to time where the movie we're reviewing that inspired the top five is so good, it should be considered for the list. And After Sun absolutely has to qualify. The other movie I'd... Call out that hasn't been brought up yet is the recent film with Nick Offerman called Hearts Beat Loud, that relationship between Frank and Sam, who he kind of forces his daughter begrudgingly to start a band together. They make some really legitimately good music, original music in that film together. Again, those are our top five father daughter screen duos. We would love to hear more of your picks or any other comments about the show. Email us feedback at
1: filmspotting.net. And Josh, that's our show. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at FilmSpotting, and I'm at Larson on Film At FilmSpotting.net, you can vote in the current FilmSpotting poll, which looks ahead to the release of Steven Spielberg's autobiographical new film, The Fablemans. We're asking who has made the best autobiographical film or films of the last decade. If you'd like show t-shirts or other merch, you can get those at FilmSpotting.net slash shop. Out
0: in limited release, you can see Utama, a film that takes place in the high plateau region of Bolivia, where an elderly couple tries to survive a long drought. Carlos Aguiar says sublime touches of magical realism and gorgeously precise cinematography. Also out after sun, highly. Highly recommended by us on digital. Is that black enough for you? Elvis Mitchell's doc about the black revolution in 70s cinema. That's on Netflix. My father's dragon from the cartoon saloon group who did Wolfwalkers and secret of the Kells that as well is on Netflix in wide release. You can watch all two hours and 40 minutes of Black Panther Wakanda forever. Josh has already done His homework, I will have to do it this weekend so that next week on the show, we can talk a little bit about Wakanda forever. And we're also going to have some fun, hopefully, with a new one from Ryan Johnson. It's Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Again, that opens November 23rd for a one-week theatrical release before coming to Netflix closer to Christmas time.
1: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dissot and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. Welcome, Veronica. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
0: And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Have you joined the Film Spotting family yet? What are you waiting for? FilmSpotting is listener-supported, and you can join the Film Spotting family by going to filmspottingfamily.com. You get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's filmspottingfamily.com. FilmSpotting is listener-supported.